Looking to create your best self, whether it's good for you lifestyle hacks, smarter ways to supplement, or tasty tips to fuel optimal health, Talk Healthy Today provides you the latest research tools and common sense tips you need to get and stay healthy starting today. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. I am absolutely in love with doing this podcast. I would be thrilled if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the podcast. Now, on to the show. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. I have met some fantastic people on Clubhouse. I haven't been as active as I was in the beginning. While I was there a lot, I met a wonderful, wonderful woman. Her name is Linda Anigawa. She is an MD, MS, F-A-C-P, D-I-P-L dot A-B-O-M. We're talking about her fantastic book, Not Another Keto Book, The Obesity Medicine Solution to Lose Weight, Boost Your Metabolism, and Feel Great. Do you prefer Dr. Linda, Dr. Anigawa? What do you prefer? Yeah, Dr. Linda is fine. It's a whole lot easier for people. (laughs) Dr. Linda, welcome to Talk Healthy Today. I'm so glad to have you. I really appreciate the chance to be here, Lisa. Well, you know, I get a lot of books and I read a lot of books and I'm very impressed. I love the way your book is laid out. I love the way that you actually ask questions. You have room for people to write down their answers. You have chapter takeaways. You have food for thought. And it just makes it so you're on this journey with them. And I think that's incredible. Plus, you give such great scientific information. As a matter of fact, in chapter one, what? Another weight loss book? You write, well, it's not exactly a weight loss book. This book is actually about obesity medicine. Let me explain the difference. So we're not going to give the whole book away, but I think that's a great place to start. What Talk to us about obesity medicine. So obesity medicine is a relatively new discipline, um, and many physicians go into obesity medicine from a variety of different specialties, including internal medicine, which is my specialty, family medicine, pediatrics, OBGYN. And so what the specialty really aims to do is to get at the root cause of metabolic disease, right? Rather than just kind of putting band-aids on a whole variety of different medical problems, right? insulin for your diabetes, blood pressure medicine for your elevated blood pressure, a statin medicine for your cholesterol, obesity medicine kind of attempts to address the whole individual at the root cause and improve their metabolic health that way. I often like to call it like a, like primary care in reverse because rather than putting on a lot of different interventions, we're often taking away medications as people lose weight and their health improves. Oh, that's awesome. You know, I love this. You write the eat less, exercise more mantra, billions of dollars in exercise programs, supplements, books, Instagram diet gurus or coaches and quick fixes have all gotten us nowhere. Well, I think part of the issue is that we've evolved a diet culture that treats excess weight as a cosmetic issue or a measure of our personal value, especially as women, right? Um, Absolutely. is beautiful, right? Fat is no good. Um, It means you're lazy. It means you lack willpower. And so I think because of that, it has set us up to be kind of in this constant hamster wheel of attempting to catch up, you know, fit in with a standard or a norm, right? And so that leads people to yo-yo. It leads people to feel incredibly frustrated. Um, 
and full of blame and shame, right? And we know that the body's not a math equation. It is a complex chemistry lab. It is a complex hormonal soup. And that's why eat less, exercise more just doesn't really work for people, Lisa, right? We have Mm -hmm. to kind of optimize the way um, our body works, right, Um, in order to maintain a healthier weight and improve our metabolic health. And by the way, you know, the other thing that I think is so important for people to hear You know, when people think about weight loss, they think about trying to achieve an ideal weight or a perfect BMI, and that's simply not not necessary. It's so good to hear that. One of the things that I have trouble with is if I see a woman who's maybe, you know, five or 10 pounds overweight, but it's not affecting her health, right? But she's just obsessed because she doesn't look the certain way versus people who really have obesity and it's affecting their health. You know, I'm a size 12. I'm shapely. I'm curvy. Yeah, I could probably lose a few pounds, but I'm in the, I'm at the point now where I'm like, yeah, but my weight isn't an issue. It's not a health issue. Right. Our, our bodies can really be healthy at a wide range of sizes and shapes. And that's who we are as individuals. I mean, I sometimes, you know, if, if you ever like go to the beach or something and just look around at all the incredible variety of different body types and shapes, it becomes very clear that genetics shapes our shape, right? And there's not a whole heck of a lot we can do about our genetics. I want to feel good. Of course, I want to look good, but I don't want to um, obsess on perfection. And that's not what your book is about. Your book is really about being healthy inside and out. And and that's why I think it's so great. And especially for people, like I said earlier, who really do have obesity issues. Like that's another, this is like apples and oranges like seeking perfection versus I've got some health issues, I need to lose weight. And you know, this is actually not just my opinion, this is actually data driven, right? Yes. So if you suffer with obesity, and some of the health complications, even just a 5% weight loss can have dramatic impact on your health overall. So that's correct. This is not about trying to get to some idealistic beauty standard. This is not about drastic weight loss whatsoever. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, I'd love to find your why. That's in chapter two. And that was such a big part in my book as well. And I love that you say, write about asking yourself some specific questions such as, what bothers me about my weight? What do I hope to achieve with my weight loss? What are my goals? And I love number three, who is the weight loss for? When the weight loss is not truly for you, it has a hard time sticking, right? You know, we talk about why long term, it's so difficult to maintain a healthy weight. And I think that's one of the reasons. I mean, typically, it's not uncommon for me to hear people saying, well, my why is... I really want to be healthy for my kids. Um, I want to have less joint pain when I'm chasing around my grandchildren or, or whatever it is. Oh, and yeah. not that there's anything wrong with that at all, you know, as long as it's meaningful to you. Um, but I think, again, too often when we hold ourselves to some external standard of how we're supposed to look, what size we're supposed to be, right? Um, it's just not as compelling, you know, for people to kind of continue with health improvements over time. And I think one of the other central themes that I try to hopefully highlight in my book is that this is really not just about 
jumping on diets, jumping off diets, right? I introduced the idea of adapt and adjust essentially because this is a lifelong process of self-examination and tweaks that you're going to make in what you're doing, right? In order to feel the best that you can feel. I really enjoyed too reading about keto versus low carb because I think people think, well, they're pretty similar, right? But what is the difference? If you can talk to us about this. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say in the realm of low carb eating, a ketogenic diet is a type of low carb eating plan in which carbohydrates are kept so low that the body is literally forced to burn fat stores from fat cells as well as from the liver into energy. And in the process, ketone bodies are produced and they're detectable in the bloodstream, right? So if you're doing a ketogenic diet and you tested yourself for blood ketones, you'll typically see a value over two. On a low carb eating plan, you might not be producing ketones to that same high amount. But nevertheless, weight loss is certainly possible for most people, whether you're doing low carb or keto. So I do talk about how I don't think it's absolutely necessary for everyone, you know, to quote unquote, go keto to lose weight. I do think that if you are particularly metabolically sick, right, if you've got like severely uncontrolled diabetes or something like that, oftentimes going keto can get you the quickest results. But I always tell people, make sure you're working with a physician who can guide you because it's often incredibly dramatic how quickly people's health measures improve, right? Their blood sugar can plummet. Their blood can absolutely plummet. I mean, sometimes within a day or two, even before the scale shows anything, it's, it's pretty dramatic. And, you know, when you look at research done by pioneers in the field, like Volick and Finney, they actually show blood markers improving in as little as 10 days. So I always tell people, just make sure you're, you're working closely with your physician if you're going to pursue a ketogenic diet and, and you have metabolic health issues. And then with low carb, that gives you maybe more carbs from vegetable sources? Yeah. So, I mean, really the carbohydrates can be from almost any source and there's a whole different variety. If you look at some new guidelines that are being developed by organizations like Low Carb USA, there's like moderate reduced carbohydrate, which is in the range of like 100 to 120 grams total per day. There's reduced, which is like 50 to 70 and et cetera, et cetera. So I always encourage my patients to try to get their carbohydrates whenever possible from the most nutrient-dense foods, right? Like the dark green leafy vegetables, dark berries, things like that. And then try to make what I call carb swaps for some of our favorites, right? So instead of eating a bagel with cream cheese and lox, you might want to do a cauliflower sandwich then instead, which reduces the carbohydrates. It's made with cauliflower, so it's very fiber-rich, and it's rich in a number of different vitamins and minerals that are so great for our bodies. Plus, it's got lots of prebiotic fiber, too, so we know those prebiotics are so important for nourishing the healthy gut species that can help us maintain better metabolic health as well. Now, what is safe weight loss? I've always been taught that it was one to two pounds a week. Is that the same for keto or does it tend to come off faster? You know, it's kind of interesting. There's actually no 
too fast weight loss when you think about it. Yeah, we've always been told one to two is associated with better long-term weight maintenance, and the data simply doesn't hold up on that. Oh, um, really? Absolutely not. And, you know, I often find for the folks that I work with, because they're so frustrated, they've done everything, they've tried everything, they're just over it already, and their confidence to succeed is quite low. So I often find a quick initial weight loss is empowering as heck and really motivating for people, right? So as long as you're well hydrated, um, you're eating the right types of foods, right? I mean, we don't want you to lose lean mass when you're losing weight, right? We want to preserve our muscle mass, especially for women as we're going through menopause. Very, very common for us to lose muscle, lose bone. And that's an issue. And we really don't want the weight loss process to contribute or accelerate that, right? So as long as you're getting an adequate protein, adequate micronutrient supplementation in the form of vitamins and minerals, and your medications are not getting too strong for you. I think that's the danger, the the one danger that I caution people about with fast weight loss. Make sure your doctor's supervised, right? So your medications can be adjusted. We don't want people keeling over because their blood pressure got so low. (laughs) That is a good, good point. You know, in the book, you have so much great science. You talk about the science of low carb eating. You talk about insulin and glucagon. I'm a big science geek. So if you can just talk a little bit about those. Absolutely. So insulin is a very, very important hormone for our body. We can't live without it. Essentially, the way I like to explain it is it turns the key on our muscle cells to allow blood sugar that we've eaten to flow into the muscle and be used for energy and burned off, right? Now, what can happen in some people who are affected by metabolic syndrome is that the muscle either is predisposed to being less sensitive or becomes less sensitive over time to insulin signal. So as a result, if the insulin cannot turn the key on that muscle cell, blood sugar builds up in the blood, right? Which can lead to, you know, prediabetes, diabetes. But the other unintended consequence is that fat cells then start to try to take up that sugar, right? To account for what the muscle cell is no longer doing. And that leads to increased fat storage as well as weight gain, right? So for my patients with metabolic syndrome, What our overall aim is first is to reduce levels of elevated insulin in the blood. And when we do that, we also have a hormone called glucagon that gets boosted up as well, right? So these two are like on a little seesaw apart from each other. And so when we tilt that balance in favor of lower insulin, higher glucagon, we can achieve a very, very efficient weight loss. Oh, that is great. I also love in the book, in chapter four, preparing to start, you talk about your goals, your motivation and readiness to adapt to change. And again, you give us great advice. Here are some suggestions to help you get ready and stay motivated for the process. And we kind of talked about this already, but there is no ideal body weight. Uh, Your function is more important than the scale. Your medical goals are more important than the scale. And you you say that motivation and readiness are two separate concepts. Can you expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's important to understand that you might be as motivated as all heck to succeed, right? You want to get rid of the medications, you want to feel better, 
you want to go shopping for new clothes, whatever, you know, your why is. But if you don't set yourself up for having the best chance of success, it's going to be very, very challenging. And I think this kind of gets back also to what we were chatting about before with respect to willpower, right? I mean, eating is a primal urge, right? We were hardwired as cave people to, you know, eat, store energy, reproduce and sleep, right? We're still human animals. So to say that, hey, we're going to rely on willpower, you know, when you open up that pantry and see the chocolate chip cookies is kind of honestly crazy. So what I mean by the readiness is, have you set yourself up for having the best chance of success? Have you cleaned out the pantry? Have you set up in your calendar a couple hours each week to go grocery shopping for yourself and to meal prep, right? So you've got all your handy meals and snacks ready. So when you're in the middle of one of your performance days, as I call them, right, where you're go, 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 right? You're going to make sure that you've got easy solutions on hand to help you succeed. And then a really big one, to help you get ready is to have conversations with your key support people, right? It's going to be really hard for your motivation to translate into success if your partner, right, is is not on board. You know, if they keep bringing home Jack in the Box, right, and you smell those fries, I mean, again, going back with the fact that hunger is a primal urge and our bodies drive to maintain the weight it's at, even at its even if it's unhealthy is very, very strong, right? So doing all those things can help. Yeah, that readiness is huge. You have to prepare. You got to have the right foods in the house. You got to have them ready to go or frozen veggies on hand. Again, clean out that pantry. And then I think what, what's hard too is if you have kids. You know, with kids or with roommates, it's super challenging. So one of the most successful strategies that I've seen for folks who have little kids is you know they'll only keep um, the healthier foods in the home, but if the kids want to have an ice cream, everybody piles in the car, goes to the ice cream parlor. You make sure you have a snack before, right? Just so you're not hungry and you're not tempted, um, or you take a quick walk around the block while somebody else brings the kid in for ice cream or whatever it is, and that way they eat it, they enjoy it. You don't bring it home. Um, I, I did have one, um, one guy who was pretty amazing. He was just like, I can't even open my roommate's fridge because if I open it, like, you know, it's just all going to go downhill from there. So he actually bought himself a mini fridge and he <laughs> in the garage and he said, this is my fridge. This is where I go. I don't even, I don't even go. Um, and you know, it's not such a terrible idea. And a mini fridge is, is That's not great crazy expensive either. So yeah, so that's a, a great example of making sure your motivation translates into being ready for the plan that you're setting for. Right. And speaking of the plan, you talk about base fuel, you've got proteins and greens, and you've got the wonderful fats that are so important. Talk to us about some of your favorite proteins and greens and fats. I am definitely a seafood person. I love fatty fish. 
I also love some of the plant-based fats. I'm crazy about avocados and olives. So um, peanut butter, <laughs> nuts. <laughs> That's definitely the way that I mean. So, you know, you're not only getting your fats in, but you're also getting your protein all in one fell swoop. Oh, that's great. You know, I, I do love my non-sugar sweeteners. I was glad to see some of them, erythritol, xylitol. There's a pr- particular brand. I have nothing to do with them, but it's called Swerve, and it's erythritol. And they've got a brown sugar that tastes just like brown sugar. They've got a white sugar. They have a powdered sugar now. So for my daughter, I'll make her like an Ezekiel, because she's not on low carb, so she's young and very slim, but um, an Ezekiel English muffin with some peanut butter, unsweetened, and then I'll take the brown sugar Swerve and put it on top. Now, if you don't want to have the muffin, obviously, you can still sweeten things up like that or get a a non-sweetened coconut milk beverage or something, almond milk beverage, and add your own sweetener. I mean, it's probably better to get used to not having sweeteners. But I mean, I think here's the thing. Nobody's striving for perfection here, right? And using the idea of making, you know, your sugar swaps or your carb swaps, if that's what helps keep you on track, um, you know, then, then do it. I mean, there's a lot of controversy and I touch on this briefly in the book about like, for example, diet soda, <laughs> um, and, and what, and what to do about that. Right. And rather than, again, just thinking about it in terms of black and white, right. If you've got severe metabolic disease, you know what, it's probably not such a terrible thing if you switch to Diet Coke temporarily. I mean, maybe eventually we're going to want to work on that and, you know, try to get you off of all of um, that phosphoric acid and, um, you know, caffeine, right? But initially, you know what, baby steps. Right. I love that. You know what I love is Zevia. It's a stevia sweetened yeah. soda. It, it doesn't even have caramel color. And then just every now and then for a treat, because I still don't, I'm not a big carbonated fan, but it's, it's quite nice. They have a nice, uh, I think it's a ginger root beer. Cause again, it is hard to go cold turkey. You also recommend, um, or not recommend, but you have on the list Lily's chocolate, which is, I think stevia sweetened. Yes. And that's nice too, because sometimes you just want that texture. Of the chocolate, right? Or the chocolate chips. So it is nice to have something to help you, you know, to get through it. The other thing I love is that you have uh, chapter six, adapting to flowing, and you have self-reflection or gratitude, mindfulness, and sleep. Talk to us about, I like that expression, adapting to flowing. What does flowing mean to you? So the, the idea of the flowing is that, you know, you don't see your day as a fight to get through, right? Right. Um, And also introduces the concept of resilience, right? And allowing yourself to kind of surf the waves of life, right? I think too many of us feel like every single day is such a fight. And then you add a weight loss journey on top of that and having to be on quote unquote, a diet, right? And everything feels like a struggle. So learning to kind of take things as they come, roll with the punches and create resilience, like emotional, physical, spiritual is also a really, really important part of a weight loss journey. Like I often find that the weight is really the red herring, right? It's a sign that something else in the body is out of balance. The same way that a fever 
is not a disease in itself, right? A fever could be due to COVID-19. It could be due to cancer. It could be due to, you know, a cold. It could be due to strep throat, right? It's just a sign in the same way that the weight is a sign that there's something um, that, that needs to be adjusted to improve your overall health. And then, you know, besides that, biologically speaking, it's very, very difficult to lose weight when our body's in a constant fight or flight response and our body's being flooded with the hormone cortisol. So improving the way we flow through the day um, by improving mood, stress, sleep, as well as movement, that will also help optimize biological conditions in the body, which will move us towards a healthier weight. You know, speaking of movement, you wrote something so interesting in the book, a quote, one of the biggest reasons is that exercise let me raise you. One of the biggest reasons exercise doesn't speed up your metab- metabolism is textbooks and personal trainers often state it actually slows metabolism. And this has been found to be especially true for those who carry excess weight. Let's break this down. Yeah, let's break that down. I was like, whoa, that's so, I've been in this field for 20 years. Over 20, what? <laughs> Tell us about this. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about it intuitively, it makes some sense, right? So, you know, remembering again that our bodies are driven to store energy, right? Um, Because millions of years ago, food sources were scarce, right? So it would make sense physiologically, if as we're starting to ramp up our physical activity, our body's going to clamp down on its own energy burn, right? Because it's trying to conserve energy, right? Um, And very interestingly, that series of experiments that I refer to talk about how if individuals are carrying excess weight, that energy burn shrinks even more, right? So the amount of calories that you'd burn if you ran a mile, right, is completely different if you're carrying excess weight, which makes the whole idea of exercise more to lose weight even more frustratingly ridiculous, you know, and I've, I've never seen such a myth create so much distress for people. You know, I mean, I have people that come to see me, I mean, and they are literally running themselves into the ground to lose weight to the point that they wear their joints, create injury, and, you know, just are, are so, so, so frustrated. Don't get me wrong. Um, I think exercise is incredibly healthy. It's the one intervention that's been shown again and again and again to improve our overall health and longevity. But as a weight loss tool, what I want to do is encourage my readers to think about it as an adjunct to improve some of those other intangibles that can help drive weight loss rather than being the primary tool. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, in chapter eight, speed bumps and roadblocks, more opportunities to adjust. You write, let's take a look at some of the most common concerns people encounter when transitioning to a lower carb eating plan and how to make adjustments. The first one is keto flu. And I'll be honest, I've been, I mean, I'm not trying to lose weight. I do tend to eat a lower carb diet because I just feel well, but not low enough to put me in ketosis. But yeah, I've been nervous about that. Keto flu is generally a problem of poor implementation of a low-carb eating plan. It's generally due to fluid and electrolyte shifts more than anything. So typically more water, more salt will fix the problems really well. Like even just drinking a cup of broth per day, not the the unsalted or the low sodium, but full salt 
broth um, of any kind. It can even be vegetable broth if you're vegetarian. It doesn't have to be a meat broth. And that can really help the symptoms. And then by far and away, the second biggest cause of, you know, quote unquote, keto flu is again, the health improving so quickly that the medications are not adjusted, right, to allow people's bodies to catch up so people can feel dizzy and weak and extremely fatigued, often as the first sign that their blood pressure medicine is way too strong, you know, even before we start to see changes in the blood pressure. So that's typically something that I'll adjust down right away to even avoid having to have somebody go through that. Yeah. The second one was food cravings. Yeah. So before the body begins burning fat, right, when you reduce carbohydrates, um, you're not yet in that metabolic state where your body is providing you fat for energy. And that can take anywhere from, you know, a day to a week for some people. So food cravings can really kick in strongly. And that's where I find that adding more healthy fat to the diet can be extremely helpful. Um, You know, I'm a classically trained obesity medicine physician, so I'm definitely not adverse to using medications with my patients if the cravings are so bad that they're literally finding it hard to function, right? So oftentimes we do use medications to help And, you know, I guess it also goes without saying that some of the cravings are more psychologically based, right? I mean, it goes way back to the time when we were little kids and we fell off our tricycle and we skinned our knee, right? And a loving adult handed us a lollipop. So we got a dopamine hit from that in the brain and it actually starts to strengthen and reinforce those pathways that get set up, right? We get a noxious stimulus and then there's something sweet, that follows it, right? So we're trained, oh my gosh, when we're feeling something uncomfortable, where's that sweet? You know, where's that sweet to to counteract it? And that's an important part of of identifying where your cravings are coming from as well. Yeah, I think so too. There are other things on that list, but you're going to have to get the book. I'm curious (laughs) about vegans and keto. That seems really complicated, but maybe it's not. Can you share a little bit about that? Absolutely. doesn't have to be complicated at all. So um, I would say that for vegan eating, there's the additional challenge of making sure that you eat complete proteins, right, that are vegetable-based, plant-based. So oftentimes we have to combine different types of plant-based proteins in order to get a complete protein which will lead to a slightly higher um, carbohydrate load, basically, if you will. But, you know, it's definitely something that's doable. I think that vegan eating, just like any kind of lifestyle eating, has its share of processed foods and junk foods. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like if you go to, you know, your local store, like, you know, the vegan cookies, the vegan crackers, the vegan, I mean, they're, they're very highly processed, some of them, right? Yeah. So by steering clear of some of those and focusing on whole foods, right, in order to get a complete protein and adequate protein, you can definitely do it. Is it harder to actually get into ketosis? Probably a little bit harder, and it depends on your body's unique carb tolerance. But absolutely, we we do that, and I've seen it happen. What kind of grains would you mix? Because the first thing I'm thinking of is like beans with something. 
Yeah, so you would have to use beans, like a, a legume protein with another whole grain protein, right? So like quinoa or something like that in order to create the complete protein. I mean, there's a lot of great soy products out there that are excellent, excellent sources of vegan protein. I mean, there's always tofu and tempeh um, that are really wonderful. Oh, that's good to know. Now, what about uh, somebody who doesn't eat dairy? Does that cause any issues? But they eat meat. Yeah, no, not generally. And, you know, there's actually quite a bit of people who are lactose intolerant, particularly women after the age of 35. Lactose intolerance can be incredibly common. Um, So you can use either a dairy substitute, right? You know, like lactate is one of the most commonly used one if you are lactose intolerant. But let's say you're avoiding dairy for another reason, right? I mean, you don't have to be lactose intolerant for dairy to give you some worsening inflammatory symptoms. So instead of getting, you know, those full fat yogurts, cheeses, um, and heavy cream, there's definitely ways to, to substitute for those. Oh, that's good to know. And what about nuts? What about people who can't have nuts? Is that an issue or there's enough other things in the low carb world that is going to give you enough protein and healthy fats? I think that there's enough in the low carb world, particularly if you're okay with animal protein, I would say probably the toughest combination would be vegan and nut free. That's going to be really, really a tough one for sure. But you know, pretty much anything can be done. And again, you don't necessarily have to get into ketosis in order to reduce your overall carbs and improve your metabolic health. That is so good. You know, earlier you talked a little bit about adjustments and you talk about weight loss, uh, prescription medications, weight loss surgery, non-prescription supplements. If you can talk a little bit about the non-prescription supplements, that would be great. Sure. I mean, my overall view on these supplements is that, you know, we really don't have great data that many of them do anything at all. There's a thing also called publication bias in the supplement world where, you know, data that shows that they're successful is published and data that shows that they are not successful tends to kind of get swept under the rug, right? They're just not... um, they're not subject to the same level of scientific scrutiny that a pharmaceutical would be. So, you know, this, the standpoint of the obesity medicine association is not to recommend them and to not have us recommend them to patients. You know, having said that, are there some plants and herbs out there with some interesting properties that might, you know, be, something that you incorporate, you know, maybe, I mean, there's a lot of studies that look at green tea. There's a lot that looks at caffeine. I mean, I think the issue that I have though, is that we don't always know how they're going to interact with other medications that you're on because they're not tested or regulated by the FDA. I think it can be really, really tricky in terms of predicting a response and they can cause problems for people. So I just always tell people, if you're interested in a supplement, talk it over with your physician, make Mm -hmm. sure it's not going to interact with any medications you already take or with any chronic health problems you have. I mean, I wouldn't want people taking green tea supplements if they've got atrial fibrillation, which is a really common weight associated heart problem. Um, 
most common heart rhythm abnormality after the age of 50, as it turns out. So oh, I would wow. really want people steering away from, from any supplement that has a stimulant property to it. Yeah, I agree. Now, I'm assuming for weight loss surgery, you have to be a, diff- a, a certain size, uh, uh, particular BMI or weight height. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so weight loss surgery, it's, it's pretty interesting because... As it turns out, the number of people who qualify for surgery is way, way, way more than the people who actually get the surgery. And I think part Mm. of that is there's a view that surgery is somehow a really drastic solution or it's really, really dangerous um, or it's a last resort. And the fact is that bariatric surgery these days in skilled hands at a center for um, excellence is about as risky as having your gallbladder out. And like, who hasn't had their mm-hmm. gallbladder out by the time they're six? Right? <laughs> and it's like, it's such a common surgery. So, um, typical qualifications, um, and it varies by location and insurance company is BMI over 40. And then a BMI 35 and above, if you have a weight related comorbidity like sleep apnea or diabetes. And there's actually many insurance plans that have now recognized the improved outcomes of weight loss surgery for people with diabetes, for example, because diabetes is is so devastating on the body. So in many locations, including my state, we perform bariatric surgery in people with diabetes all the way down to a BMI of 30, right? Which you may think, oh my gosh, that, you know, that again, sounds drastic, But as it turns out, untreated diabetes or diabetes that's not responding to typical medical treatments, you will do way better over the long term with bariatric surgery, even if you don't lose a giant amount of weight or if you regain some weight. That's the really fascinating thing is it's truly a metabolic procedure. It alters the way your body works. So, you know, you don't have to go all the way down to 110 pounds. You lose, you regain. Interestingly, the diabetes doesn't seem to come back. Oh, wow. Now, can you be a teenager and have this done? Or what's the, what's the age that they recommend you is the youngest that they would do? It depends. Um, you know, there's a lot of active study on weight loss surgery in teens who are 16 and up. Um, and it is approved in certain situations. I would say it's not universal. And one of the keys to making sure your bariatric surgery is successful, of course, is being able to adopt the lifelong eating changes that are necessary to keep you healthy. And I think one of the things that's a struggle for teens, of course, is that they don't have that same long-term vision as an adult. Right. You know, they almost think like, you know, they live for today. Right. They have a completely different mentality. So um, I'm an advocate for sure. I would say definitely before considering bariatric surgery for your team, make sure that you work where there is a center of excellence and have behavioral support, psychological support and comprehensive nutritional support as well. Oh, that's great. Now, when people have these surgeries and there's a large weight loss, they're often left with loose skin. Is that something that is covered by insurance, would you say, for plastic surgeons? Or is because I don't think that's just like a vanity thing. 
I would say hanging skin is something that people are definitely very concerned about with any weight loss journey. I mean, I've seen it even without bariatric surgery, right? You lose your pounds, your skin is going to be looser. And a lot of that is a function of your age and your genetics, right? As well as how long you've maintained that weight, right? So right at the end of a weight loss journey, you might have more skin, right? But over time, the skin will shrink and tighten. So I guess the number one thing is you don't need to rush to the plastic surgeon right away, right? Like you actually like kind of relax, give your body time to reshape itself. And then once you've achieved a weight loss, when you start building more muscle with more physical activity, oftentimes the muscle expands into some of the loose skin, not all of it, but some of it, right? So that's number one. Um, Number two, so In terms of whether having a loose skin is medical, absolutely it's a medical concern because you can have chronic skin infections underneath skin folds called intertrigo that can actually be very stubborn, very, very uncomfortable, and super difficult to treat. So like one of my little tricks (laughs) when I'm referring to a plastic surgeon um, is to really make sure that those diagnoses are front and center. Like I actually have some patients who have so much hanging skin on the belly that it starts to throw their back out and they have severe. That's another medical concern. So, yeah. So I think there's something going on medically. You can definitely get most insurance to, to cover skin removal surgery, but always check with your plan first. And, you know, generally the plastic surgeon's offices will do prior authorizations and contact who they need to. But you're right. It's, I mean, it's an important part of the health improvement process. We don't want so much hanging skin that you can't move, you can't exercise, because like we talked about, that's important for your overall health as well as for your weight maintenance. Yeah. Is there anything, uh, Dr. Linda, that we didn't touch on today that you'd like to? This has been incredible. And again, the book is a must-have, not another keto book, The Obesity Medicine Solution to Lose Weight, Boost Your Metabolism, and Feel Great. I guess, you know, the one thing that that I want to say in closing um, is that I hope coming out of this pandemic, um, we're now starting to shed some light or more light on the disease of obesity that made us so much sicker as a country from this pandemic. Um, And also that certain groups of people in our country were so disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly people of color, right? And the underlying issue here is the disease of obesity, right? Which of course disproportionately affects people of color and people who are socioeconomically disadvantaged. So I guess what I'm hoping is that as our nation really starts to address more of these healthcare inequities, that um, obesity really takes front and center here, right? As we start to improve the health of our population the health of our kids, right? Getting to those root causes and improving access throughout the country. Um, I really hope that that's something that will come out of the pandemic. 
Dr. Linda, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. I do a podcast with a woman named Sunny Days. It's called Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag where we talk about anti-racism and bias and health disparities and housing inequities. I mean, there's so many. And I think that's such a good point. And I'm so glad that it just makes me, it just warms my heart that you brought that up. So I really appreciate you. Tell us all the ways we can find you, Dr. Linda, in your amazing book. Absolutely. So probably the easiest way is just to go to my website, which is anigawa-md.com. And I have the universal book link there. Um, And you can read more about the book. You can actually read an excerpt. You can sign up for my email list and get my free downloadable guide should you go keto. There's also, um, if you're a Goodreads member, there's a current um, entry for a giveaway of 100 copies of the book. So if you're on Goodreads, um, definitely look for the giveaway. And I also have a link to that on my Instagram account as well. Can you spell your uh, website out for us? Sure. It's A N E. G-A-W-A hyphen M-D dot com. Probably should have had a better, better last name for that, you know. I like it. (laughs) It's a beautiful name. Dr. Linda, this has been so enjoyable. I'm so glad we met. And I think your book is great. And I highly encourage everybody to check it out and be sure to find you on. Are you still active on Clubhouse? You know, just like you, not as much in the last couple of months, but I'm definitely going to bop on there more now. I actually just formed um, the Obesity Medicine Club, which is new. So hoping to host some more rooms and meet everybody and, and continue to meet such wonderful and fascinating people like yourself. Oh, thank you. Linda, thank you so much for coming on Talk Healthy today. It's been great. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Thank you so much for listening to Talk Healthy Today. Please do rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And also, if you want some behind the scenes on Talk Healthy Today or a chance monthly to win my book, Clean Eating Dirty Sex, which is a memoir, cookbook, healthy lifestyle guide, it's the title is just a play on words, please go to www.lisadavismph.com. Sign up for my newsletter. And once a month, you'll be getting some great information as well as being entered into a contest to win my book. So again, go to www.lisadavismph.com. Get more on Talk Healthy Today and keep coming back. There's always great information. Thank you.